if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the Pew Bible is available. We're going to be on page 1056. And we're doing a short sermon series on wisdom in between books of the Bible. We finished the Gospel of Matthew on Easter, and we're going to start the book of Genesis after Mother's Day. Um, And a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus, the wisdom teacher, the wisest man that ever lived. What did Jesus, how did Jesus teach? How does he expect us to learn? Last week, we talked about the different avenues for information where we can learn wisdom in the world and how some things are foundational. God's word is foundational and some things are, we should use sparingly like cable news and social media. Those things are uh, not as helpful in our quest for wisdom. So this morning, since the word of God is foundational for wisdom, we're gonna kind of take a deeper dive into how we are to handle God's word. Uh, But first, I've got a question for you. Um, In the front, you might be able to see this. This is a tool. I've got a picture of the head of this tool. When I uh, first started working a number of years ago in the audio video department at the Croc Center, there was a giant giant workshop in the back and it was filled with tools. Many of those tools I understood, they were screwdrivers, there were hammers, there were wrenches. But then there was this tool and it looks kind of like a screwdriver but you, if you push on it, there's a little bit of spring in this little blade. And uh, it says, it's some, some, some of them have like little things on the other side. And, and I looked at this tool and I did not know what this tool was. And because I did not know what this tool was, I did not know what this tool was for, and I did not know how to use it. And so... This tool was not helpful to me. When I had a problem to solve, when I needed to run to the tool room to get something, I could not reach for this tool because I did not know how to use it. This tool is called a punch-down tool. If you've ever seen a server rack, maybe on TV or even in person, and there's like all these network cables coming out the front, well, if you flip the server rack around... You can see the back of the server rack and there's all these little wires that fit into these little slots. And this tool is what you put in between the little slot to push the wire down to make contact with the metal so that your internet works. Now that doesn't really matter to you today. Other than if scripture is foundational for our lives, if it is a tool that God has given us to use in order to learn wisdom, We need to know what it's for. We need to know how it works, and we need to know how to use it correctly, or one, we're not going to use it at all, or we're going to use it wrongly. And so I'm going to go full Baptist pastor on you today and give you four P words. We're going to talk about our posture towards the Bible. We're going to talk about the purpose of the Bible. We're going to talk about the perspective of the Bible, and we're going to talk about our prophet in the Bible. So what should be our posture towards the Bible? How should we come to and interact with the scriptures? Take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes to his uh, son in the faith, his, his uh, co-worker, his friend, Timothy. He says, but as for you, Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. 
Paul tells Timothy to continue in what he has learned. The Bible is a tool that we do not read just once. The Bible is not something that you go to, you glean the thing from it, and then you're done with it. You read it and you study it for a lifetime. We're called to continue in it. We should expect Scripture to continually shape and transform us. Part of my, my, my part-time job is uh, I'm a videographer. I, I make uh, corporate videos for different things. And, and part of that responsibility uh, is that I, I fly a drone to get like building shots and, and other things. And if you fly a drone commercially, you have to have a license for it. And in order to get that license, you have to pass a test. And on that test, there's all kinds of crazy stuff that pilots need to know on that test. Uh, like, um, there's these things called METARs, which are these coded weather messages that airports send out. And they're like letters and numbers and dashes, and they tell you how many clouds there are in the sky and how high the clouds are and what kind they are and what the temperature is and if it's hailing or snowing. And it's all kind of in this code that can be easily read really quickly by people that know how to interpret it. And I had to learn how to read those codes to get my drone license. So I studied that manual over and over and over and over again, and then I took my test, and then I completely forgot everything that I learned after I got my license. Because I didn't really need it. I don't need to know how to read METARs. I don't need to know how traffic patterns around airports work. I just need to not hit trees. So I passed my test, I got my license, and then I just never looked at that manual again. But that's not how we should be approaching Scripture. Our posture towards the Bible is continual because the Scriptures are going to continually bear weight on our lives. Many of you know this. Many of you have read the Bible. You've read a verse that you've, uh, or a series of verses, a passage that you've heard over and over and over again, and each time it speaks to you in a different way because the power of the Holy Spirit is in you, teaching you through the words. The Word of God has the power to teach us continually. But that's not the only posture we have towards the Bible. Look at the rest of verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, you know those who taught you. Paul's speaking of himself. Elsewhere, he talks about Timothy's mother and Timothy's grandmother who taught him the scriptures. Our posture towards the Bible needs to be relational. We should know those who teach us. The study of the word of God most often comes through relationship. Now, it's possible to just pick up a Bible and read it and study it and learn from it. The Holy Spirit is powerful and he will teach you. But God's preferred method of his people learning and growing is together. We've talked about this, uh, but that's why we have community groups. That's why we have gatherings of the church because we are meant to study God's word as a people in community and we're supposed to know the people who teach us. Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 to go make disciples. Disciples are relationships. A disciple, someone who is discipling me is a little bit farther along in the faith and they're pouring into my life with God's word and someone I'm discipling is a little less far along in the faith than I am and I am getting to know them and building relationship with them and pouring into them with God's word. So our posture towards the scriptures 
is relational. So what's the purpose of the Bible? Look at verse 15. Paul says, And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The scriptures are designed to give us wisdom for salvation in Christ Jesus. Here's a question. Can can you go to the scripture to learn how to change the oil in your car? No. When your surgeon comes to you and goes, hey, I never went to medical school, but I memorized 1 John. So are we good? No. No, you're not good. You run away. Because there's certain things, certain good things that that we might want to know in life that Scripture's not going to tell us. That's just the truth. The purpose of the Scriptures is to give us wisdom for salvation. There is a story that the Bible is telling. Another way to say it is that the centerpiece of the Word of God is Jesus. All of the questions the Bible is seeking to answer. Who is God? How did we get here? What went wrong with our lives? How can it be fixed? What's the point of my life? All these major questions are answered in Scripture and are directly connected to Jesus and his mission to bring you and I back into the family of God. And so when we study the Scriptures, we need to remember the purpose of the Scriptures is to point us to Jesus. But there's one more purpose of the scriptures in this passage, and that's in verse 17. We're jumping down to the bottom of the section. Paul says, scripture is inspired by God, which we're going to talk about in a minute, so that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every good work. God wants us to live a certain kind of life. There are, there are things in this book that we should be doing. There are things that we should not be doing. And it's not because God is an evil taskmaster. It's not because we are legalistic. It's because God loves us and he cares about us and he has created a world that he wants us to live in. And he said, hey, if you want to live in this world that I made, here's the best way to do it. Sometimes we get really consumed with the work of Jesus, and we should be consumed with the work of Jesus, but so much so that we downplay that the scriptures actually have a certain kind of life that they are calling us to live. There are certain things that we're expected to do in God's word because the Bible wants us to live a life that brings glory to God. And there's three kinds of, uh, of things that we're called to do. And a mentor of mine came up with this um, uh, list of different kinds of faith. Uh, the first thing is there's confessional faith. Scripture tells us things that we're to confess, things that we're to believe. Some of us in our community groups are studying through the Apostles' Creed right now. The Apostles' Creed is a confession of belief. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, and so on and so forth. That's a confession, the things that I affirm to be true, and we search the scriptures for those things. But the second thing is functional faith. Functional faith is how you and I live out our lives. I believe these things. Well, what does that mean Monday morning? How are you going to walk that out? Because you believe this, 
How does it change your actions? And then the third thing is devotional faith, and that's your actual relationship with God. We're meant to have a relationship with the creator of the universe through his son. We are adopted into his family. And that one's a little harder to understand, but let me illustrate it this way. I can know in my, in my heart, I can know in my head that I'm called to love my wife. I can know in my heart and in my head that I am called to love my children. I can even decide, you know what? I'm going to bring Joanna flowers. I'm going to I'm going to buy a toy for my kids. But I can still do those things with a rotten attitude, with selfish motives, to get my own way, to manipulate the situation, to just check a box. And we do the same thing with God. If we have Confessional faith, I I believe these things are true about Jesus. Functional faith, maybe I do them. I I don't do this and I don't do that and I stay away from those things and I make sure to do these things over here because that's what God wants me to do. I can be in both of those places and still be millions of miles away from the heart of God. Paul says that Scripture equips us for every good work. And that has to do with the things that we believe, the way that we act, and our actual communion with God. The purpose of the Bible is that we would be transformed people. So what's the perspective of the Bible? What is... What is the Bible coming to us as? Look at verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is inspired by God. What we understand inspiration to mean is really important. And I would give you, there's probably lots of ways to understand inspiration, but I want to give you two bad ways. One way I've heard inspiration uh, talked about is that the Bible is inspired like uh, a movie is inspired by a true story. There's some stuff in there that's like kind of true. Or maybe the, the, the Bible is inspired because it's inspirational. It makes me feel good. Something in the Bible is kind of vaguely nice. That is not a good way to understand inspiration. The word inspired in this verse is a Greek word called theonoustos, which as far as we can tell is a word that the Apostle Paul made up. It's not found anywhere else in ancient literature. And it's two words that he put together. And the first word is the word for God. And the second word is the word breathed. So if the scripture is inspired, Paul is saying it is God breathed. Now, That means that God is doing something in the authors of Scripture to give his stamp of approval and authority to them. Now, an unhelpful way to understand this is that the authors of Scripture, like, get this Holy Spirit digital download 
of, of the Bible. They're just, they're just going along, doing their thing, and all of a sudden they're like in a trance and they, they, they've got a pen and they just start writing. Like that's not how inspiration works. The Bible isn't a channeled document. If you're familiar with the teachings of, of the new age, there are new age teachers that believe that they have been channeled, uh, that have been channels of wisdom from the divine. And so they go into this weird trance and they've got a pen and paper and they're just writing feverishly and then they wake up out of the trance and look, there's something there. That's not how the Bible works. The Bible, the scriptures are a human written, divinely empowered document. Second Peter chapter one, verses 20 and 21 says this, above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word carried along there is used in the book of Acts to talk about how the wind is blowing in the sails of a ship. Now, for those of you that know anything about sailing boats, does the ship, is the ship only able to go exactly the direction that the wind is blowing? No. The wind is empowering the boat, but the boat still has a rudder. See, God inspired the scripture in that God's preferred ultimate outcome is accomplished through the intellect the experiences and the life circumstances of the authors of scripture. For instance, in this letter right now, Paul is a first century Christian leader. He is in prison and he thinks he is going to die. He thinks he's gonna be executed by the Roman government for being a Christian. And he's writing to his disciple and his friend Timothy and he's giving him some final instructions based on that presumption that he is never going to see him again that his life is over. Timothy, I just need to give you some final words of advice. And God comes along and says, you know what, Paul? Based on who you are, based on the circumstances of your life, based on what you're doing right now, I am going to use these things to shape and guide this in my perfect way. And then I'm gonna say, yes, that document that you've created is exactly what I wanted written down. And it's important that we understand this when we seek to understand scripture, because just like if, if I look at this tool and I don't know how it works, I'm gonna use it incorrectly. It's also important to realize this because there are certain critics of the scriptures, people on, on YouTube and, and Google that would say, the Bible's full of contradictions or the Bible supports this terrible thing or God's a monster because of this and this and this. And they don't usually understand how to use the Bible either. And I want to give you a couple examples. This first one is from Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. It's part of what's called the Torah, uh, the law of Moses. It's a story of um, the people of Israel are going into this new land that God is giving them. And Moses is teaching them how to act when they get there. Deuteronomy 21, verse 15 through 17. If a man has two wives one loved and the other neglected, and both the loved and the neglected bear him sons. And if the neglected wife has the firstborn son, when the man gives what he has to his sons as an inheritance, he is not to show favoritism to the son of the loved wife as his firstborn over the son of the neglected wife. He must acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the neglected wife, by giving him two shares of his estate, for he is the first fruits of his virility. He has the rights of the firstborn." 
So what are we supposed to do with this? When, you, when you're reading through Deuteronomy in your daily devotions, and you get to this section, then what? Is this, is this pro-polygamy? Is that what we're supposed to, like, do? I've talked to Joanne about getting another wife, and she doesn't think it's going to work out very well for us. So, so but, if, but the Bible says maybe, maybe that's what we're supposed to do. Is it pro-double inheritance? Sons get twice as much of an inheritance. Sorry, women. Is that what we're supposed to get out of this? Well, it depends on how we understand this book to be used. See, if God is saying, Moses, you are writing to a particular people in a particular culture with a particular set of circumstances, and I want you to explain my heart to them. I want you to explain what it's like to live the good life. And I'm going to approve of that. We have to ask some questions about, well, what, what was Moses like? What were, what were Moses' people like? What were the Israelites like? Well, we see that, yeah, polygamy was a reality in ancient Israel. It's just, it's just the way it was. But we also see if we read other parts of Scripture that it wasn't what God wanted, God said at the very beginning of the book that a man and a woman are supposed to be in this covenant of marriage by themselves for, the, for their lives. We don't practice this idea of double an inheritance. We don't, we don't see men as the only really legitimate heirs to a, a state. This, this passage isn't pro-polygamy and it's not pro-double inheritance. It's it's actually pro-justice. Hey, just because your firstborn son came from that woman that you don't love doesn't mean you can get away with being unjust to him. You have to be fair in the way you handle your estate. Discharging your obligations honorably is more important than your feelings. Now, can we take that and walk out of here and do something with that? I think so. I think we all have obligations. We're like, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. Well, you've, for whatever reason, you've, you've got a contract or you made a promise or this is the way your family works. You need to fulfill your obligations honorably. And as a, as a further note about polygamy, this is actually critical of polygamy. Like, if you've got two wives, now you've got this situation which is super messy and weird. So d just don't do that. Like, just get one wife and then you won't have to deal with this. If we don't begin to think this way about the scriptures, we will get them wrong. Uh, a YouTube channel that I follow is, because um, I'm, I'm super cool, it's a guy that, uh, that takes 18th century recipes and cooks them, and he wears like a tricorn hat and like this all get up, and he has this old kitchen, and he, his whisk is made out of twigs. It's awesome. Um, and so he was making this recipe uh, for deep-fried lobster, and he was like, deep-fried lobster? Wow, why would you do that to lobster? But then he talked about how in the 1700s, there was so much lobster on the East Coast, it generally got fed to prisoners. Nobody, everybody was like, there's so, ew, lobster again. I'm not eating lobster anymore. So deep frying your lobster wasn't a big deal.
But if you don't know that about the 1700s, then you make mistakes about what life was like then. I'll give you another example from Scripture. This one's super fun. This is Psalm 74, verses 12 through 17. The psalmist writes, God, my king, is from ancient times, performing saving acts on the earth. You divided the sea with your strength. You smashed the heads of the sea monsters in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You fed him to the creatures of the desert. You opened up springs and streams. You dried up ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, also the night. You established the moon and the sun. You set all the boundaries of the earth. You made summer and winter. What is this text about? kind of sounds like it's about creation. It also kind of sounds like it's about the Exodus when God parted the Red Sea and sent the people across. But is it also kind of about sea monsters? What are we supposed to do with that? Are there, are there sea monsters? Who's Leviathan? If we, don't, if we don't know anything about the culture of the psalmist, we start, we start kind of unraveling this in really strange ways. But the cool thing about this passage is that when the psalmist wrote it, there was another book. It was a bestseller. It was called The Bale Cycle. And it was written by a community of people in a city called Ugarit. They lived just north of the Israelites. And in The Bale Cycle, they tell the story of Baal, their God, and how he created the world. And the way he created the world was he defeated the great sea monster, Yom. And when he killed Yom, he used his body and his blood to make the world. Now, if you read the Old Testament, Baal's a big deal. The people surrounding Israel, they worship Baal as their God and their king. And, and the Israelites, they even start to worship Baal and, and their God, Yahweh, says, don't do that. So what the psalmist is doing, even though in Genesis, it doesn't say anything about God killing a sea monster because he didn't do that. It's saying, hey, you know that story about Baal that's super popular about how he killed the sea monster when he created the world? He didn't do that. He's not real. Yahweh, our God, he's the real God that we should be worshiping. But if you don't know about that other book that everybody in this audience would have known instantly, the psalmist was like, yeah, you know that other book? That's dumb. Then we start going, and doing really weird things with this text. The psalmist knows all of this, and so does his audience. Baal is not the one that created the world. Yahweh is. Now, learning this kind of stuff, it takes study. So that whole, we're, we're in the Bible continually, that part's important. But it also takes other people, because I don't know how to speak Ugarit, but there are other Christians that do. There are scholars that spend their entire lives digging stuff up out of the ground to learn this kind of thing. So it takes community to really study God's word. So last P, what's the profit of the Bible? What is the Bible going to do for us? Back to verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. So teaching, teaching is what do I need to believe about God, myself, and the world? What do I need to know? 
Rebuking is, what do I need to stop believing about God, myself, and the world? What, what lies am I telling myself that I need to stop believing? Correcting is, what do I need to stop doing? I'm doing this thing, I'm living this way, and the Bible says you should stop it. Training in righteousness is, what do I need to start doing? What are the things that I need to start practicing in my life? So here's an example. This is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strengthened in the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Now, is that up there? Can we put that up there? If it's not up there, open up your Bibles real quick to Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to look at this. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. We're going to do a little interactive Bible study here. So Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 13, what, what do you need to believe about God, yourself, and the world in this passage? So you see something you need to believe, just shout it out. Say again. There's a spiritual battle going on. Do we believe that? Do we go throughout our day just kind of doing our thing and checking off boxes and go to world, going to work? Or do we believe that there's literally a battle going on around us? It's great. What about rebuking? What do we need to stop believing about God, ourselves, and the world? Yeah, that's so good. Are there people that just, you hate? Like, man, I hate them. They drive me crazy. If they were just this, then it'd be okay. But they're this. They're my enemy. They don't believe what I believe or they, they don't act the way I want them to act and they're bad. No, they're not. They're children of God. They're beloved. They're image bearers. They're made in his image and we're called to love them even if they're our enemies because ultimately our enemies are the spiritual powers of darkness that have them captive, God's word says. What about correcting? What do I need to stop doing? Something I need to stop doing in this passage. What's the author assuming I'm, I'm, I'm not doing? Not wearing the armor. Yeah, I'm not standing. You need to stop sitting down, right? You need to get in this. Training in righteousness. What do I need to start doing? Yeah, put on the armor of God. And he goes on, 
to delineate what that looks like in the passage, you need to start resisting. You need to start fighting back against the spiritual powers that are seeking to destroy you. Every passage of Scripture, and if you, if you need some Bible study tools, this is a really helpful one. You can ask those four questions to every passage of Scripture. And Paul says that all Scripture is inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. So no matter where you are in your Bible study, you can use those categories to pull meaning out of the text. So, before we wrap up, we're going to look at one more text. And I want somebody to tell me what text that is. Let's pick a passage of Scripture. It's like a magic trick. What? Song of Solomon, chapter 1. You think that's going to be a problem. <laughs> okay, turn in your Bibles to Song of Solomon, chapter 1. <laughs> we'll see. See, that's a good question. Like, sometimes a verse by itself isn't enough to really grab the meaning of. Sometimes you have to look at a whole passage. Let's do... You're putting the whole thing up there? Uh, let's do the first four verses. That's a good chunk. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me into his chambers. We will rejoice and be glad in you. We will celebrate your caresses more than wine. It is only right that they adore you. Okay. So you're just reading, you're reading through your Bible and you get to Song of Solomon and, okay, what's this weird book about? We need, we need to know something about this book. This is written by King Solomon. It's a series of love poems Initially, it's, it's our best example in the scriptures of what romantic love is meant to look like between a husband and wife. But it also has hints because we learn in Ephesians, right, that, that the relationship between a man and his wife are like the relationship between Christ and the church. And so while the immediate context is Solomon writing a love poem, we can, we can glimpse some things about what God thinks about us. So with that backdrop, either romantic love or Christ in the church, what, what does this passage teach us? What do you need to believe about God or yourself or the way the world works? Yeah, only he matters. That's good. The, the, the greatest object of our affections is Jesus. And I would also say, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking about marriage, is, 
Is physical intimacy good? Yeah. Yeah, God, God made it that way so that a man and his wife would rejoice in one another. What about rebuking? What do you need to stop believing about God, yourself, and the world in this passage? You're not cherished. Yeah, how many of us believe that? You know, God puts up with me because he has to, because the Bible says he does, but he doesn't really like me. He doesn't really really love me that much. That's a lie. We need to stop believing that. God cherishes us as his beloved children. What about correcting? What do you need to stop doing? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, maybe that's, not, maybe that's not directly in this passage, but it's an implication, right? That, that there is a specific love that God is calling us to and all of the other ones are false. What about training in righteousness? What do you need to start doing? Yeah, rejoice. Be glad. I also like the beginning of verse four. Take me with you, let's hurry. Is that your approach to your relationship with God? I can't wait to spend time with you. I can't wait to see you. The Bible is profitable for these things. And if we commit to studying it, continually in community, it will transform us. Here's one of the problems with that though, as we wrap up. The perspective question, the whole like, who wrote this and who was the audience and is this poetry or is this a historical account, all that kind of stuff that's super necessary for understanding God's word, that's often the hard part. How do I know what's literal and what's metaphor? How do I know if some ancient author is quoting some other book that they knew about but we don't have in the scriptures? So next week for our final week of this series on wisdom, we're gonna talk about some tools that we can use to help us understand what the scriptures mean. So as we close, as always, we're gonna take communion together. We're gonna remind ourselves of the ultimate story of scripture that Jesus came to make the world back into the way he initially designed it to be and to invite us to be a part of it by taking away our sins on the cross, by paying the penalty for them, by dying and rising from the dead and giving us new life. We're gonna take the cup and we're gonna take the bread as a reminder of those things. I read you John chapter one. John writes, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Jumping down to verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son of the father, full of grace and truth. The word of God, the wisdom of God that created the world became a human being filled with grace and truth. And our ability to gain wisdom is directly connected to our closeness to Jesus. So I'd encourage you, as we take communion, think about your confessional faith. What are the things that you believe to be true? Think about your functional faith. How does that play itself out in your everyday life? But also think about your devotional faith. How are you actually getting to know Jesus better? What practices are you putting in place to grow in your intimacy with God? What attitudes are you cultivating in your soul to make that more of a reality on a day-by-day basis? You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.